This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. My name is Ken Tripp, and we have yet another fantastic show for all of our red shirts out there in Trek FM land. Tonight, I am covering for the great Norman Lau, who is on assignment for his other full-time job, ensuring he has a secure income in order to purchase collectibles and then give them away during contests when he makes a mistake on the air. He's a good guy. And I'm privileged to work with the host and the star of Standard Orbit, our own Mr. Atos, Jeffrey Harlan. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I'm just uh, getting over some more of that time lag, you know, just bouncing back between the centuries. It's not easy. It's a tough time of year, especially when you're doing time travel to stay healthy. Hopefully you're taking plenty of vitamin C. Oh, yes. Okay. That's what we need to hear. So today's show, uh, we're going to be taking a look at the Commodores in the original series. And this is a very interesting subject. This was uh, Norman Lowe's suggestion. And he sent us some information of things that he wanted covered and some things that we were going to put together for you. And it's, it's a very, I think, unique thing to talk about because Commodores really didn't pull into the other Star Trek series or movies. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to run through a quick history of the rank and title of Commodore and how it impacted our timeline, meaning the last century or so, and then we'll get into talking about the different Commodore characters that have made their appearances on the original series. So just so everybody's aware, the term Commodore in both the U.S. and British Navy was given to the senior ranking captain. So the person who, who had the rank of captain who was commanding more than one ship or a squadron or unit. So before World War II, the, diff, the, the navies, the British and the U.S. Navy, there were only three levels of admiral. There was a rear admiral, a vice admiral, and an admiral. And during World War II, after immense buildup of the fleet and to better align with the Army and Marine Corps, who had four levels of general, if you remember that saying, be my little general, brigadier, brigadier general, lieutenant general, major general, and general, uh, the Navy made the Commodore rank official, and it was essentially a one-star admiral. Now, after the war, the rank was removed about three or four years after the war ended, and they replaced it with the title of Rear Admiral Lower Half. What a horrible rank, but that still exists today. So the title of Commodore has since gone back to positional authority of a senior captain still in charge of multiple ships or squadrons. And there were a few years in the 80s when the rank of Commodore actually came back, but it was very short-lived and returned to the current state. So if we take the history that we know from the U.S. and from the British fleet, in Star Trek, in the 60s, Commodores were a flag rank. They were essentially a one-star admiral. Uh, they were aligned to how the U.S. Navy was during World War II. Uh, what was interesting, though, is that in Star Trek, there was also a rank known as fleet captain. Now, there was never such a rank in the British or U.S. navies. Uh, and if the writers had been consistent in how they did things, then you would have thought that both Fleet Captain Pike and Fleet Captain Garth should have been Commodores. Do you feel the same way there, Jeff? Yeah, I'm thinking maybe they were trying to have it both ways, where Commodore was effectively the rear admiral lower half, and mm -hmm. they then had the distinction Fleet Captain for the senior captains of a group, because now Commodore was already taken for a rank. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, because I was looking at some of the... Um the uniforms, and it looked like their arm insignias were pretty similar. Was there, was there a distinction that you're aware of? Mm, not that I can recall. Yeah, I thought that was um, I thought that was interesting. It's actually a pretty cool rank. That wouldn't be a bad title for anybody. So what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about some of the the key Commodores uh, that played major roles within the series, 
And we're going to start off with Commodore Met Decker, commanding officer of the USS Constellation. So, Jeff, what were your impressions of Commodore Met Decker and the episode Doomsday Machine? Well, we definitely didn't catch him at his best. Uh, he had suffered a pretty uh, significant loss, and he had pretty thoroughly cracked at that point that we finally got to see him. So I I, I can see the, uh, the, the comparisons to Captain Ahab. I mean, it's, uh, that's pretty uh, apparent. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Decker that everyone else knew in the Starfleet, uh, in the Star Trek universe, the one that was famous as being just this exceptional captain, we never got to see him in the episode. And I, I felt that was kind of unfortunate because I would have liked to have seen him at one point, you know, when he was going out and exploring with his crew. Oh, absolutely. I, I think when I used to watch Star Trek as a kid, and even now today, anytime they came across another vessel, it was always pretty cool. It was always a Constellation class. I mean, I'm sorry, Constitution class. And when they came across the Constellation and it was all beat up, it was it was pretty scary. But I have to say that the actor, William Wyndham, who played him, did an outstanding job. I mean, you could tell, and he was very believable, battle-rattled, extremely emotional, and, you know, did what, what any good commander would do uh, in a crisis, which, you know, is to allow his crew a chance to live and then makes the ultimate mistake in seeing the planet that he beamed his entire crew down to to survive get destroyed. And then he becomes the lone survivor. And I don't know how mm-hmm. anybody would crack under that kind of pressure. Uh, William Weldon, Wyndham came on, too. Uh, he, he could definitely, he had great expressions. He had... Uh, a very solid, and he has such a deep voice. I mean, he he had this air of authority with him that you could see through what he once was, I think, pretty easily. But as I was researching this, I found it interesting that they had originally cast it for a stronger actor. I don't remember who the name was. And that he was a bit more aggressive and a bit more over the top. And they actually toned him down uh, quite a bit when they hired William Wyndham, which... I could easily see him playing a very dramatic, over-the-top Commodore Decker. I mean, he was pretty much to me during that episode. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean that that's uh, that was an interesting bit of casting there. But I I think the they made the the best choice going with Win, William Wyndham because I I just maybe it's just uh, fifty years of uh, seeing him in the role, but I just can't picture anyone else doing it. Uh, he just nailed it. He did. And you know what? He was one of those guys, too, who, as time went on, he aged very well, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Um, They (laughs) they had him him. in uh, one of the uh, Phase 2 New Voyages um, fan films, and he was reprising his role, basically, uh, when uh, the the story was that when he went into the uh, Doomsday Machine, the explosion actually caused like a space-time rift, and he got sent back in time to Earth, and... So he ends up stranded on Earth in the 20th century, and oh, yeah? Kirk go, has to go back in time, and they find him. And they made really good use of uh, the the one fan that had the shuttlecraft in his garage, because they open up the garage and there's the shuttlecraft. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> and they uh, um, they get a like a, a recorded video message from Commodore Decker, uh, and it's in a much older William Wyndham. Oh, that's pretty neat. I I just thought the, the world of him, especially as he went on, and I remember, I'm pretty sure he did a few audio books, too, for mm-hmm. Star Trek. And his voice is very distinct and uh, just carries on well. So I, I know, I think I think he passed not that long ago, uh, probably five or six years ago now. Mm-hmm. He, he, was, he was pretty old, but he looked great and just had an air about him. I, if, if you wanted to play Commodore, I think they, they, they nailed it with, with William Wyndham. And uh, then the other aspect of this, Jeff, is that uh, we presume that he was the dad of Will Decker from Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah, all the uh, behind-the-scenes information that was coming out when they were leading up to releasing the film, they're talking about Will Decker, and they linked him pretty specifically to Matt Decker. They just never explicitly said it in the movie. But all the other... No, they never all the, did. All the other uh, tie-in media all had, you know, uh, had the... Uh, the link there there was uh, like in their press releases and all this other stuff and it made its way into the novels and the comics and everything 
So I, I I did read the novelization, but it has been many years. Did they did they mention it in that? Do you remember? At all? I don't recall. It's been probably more uh, a good decade since I read the the novelization of motion picture. Yeah, and I I and I was just trying to think back to it, but I thought that would have been something that could have been called at out during the movie too to make just a, a little bit more drama there and a and make it just a, a tad more interesting because if if you didn't know who he was um and and probably the pain on one part that that Kirk had to relieve him in the first place would have played a little bit further and you know if if that had been mentioned I guess maybe when they were eyeball to eyeball and and Will Decker was kind of accusing him of you know just just letting his own ego take over and that he had no intention of giving him the ship I think that would have been a a a very dramatic scene that would have kind of uh harkened back to all the fans a little bit yeah, that would have been a good spot to throw it in. Just kind of throw it in Kirk's face, you know, uh, you know, something like, you know, I'm not my father, or you know, something like that. Or you didn't save him, yeah. something along those lines. Yeah. So it would have been, it would have been interesting. Okay, anything else on Commodore Decker before we move to our next Commodore, sir? I think this is a good opportunity to move on. Okay, so the next one that we are going to talk about is Commodore Bob Wesley. He was the commanding officer of the USS Lexington and in charge of a squadron testing the capabilities of the M5 computer aboard the Enterprise. So, Jeff, what what are your thoughts of Commodore Wesley and even the episode Ultimate Computer? Well, like you were saying, the uh, uh, Commodore Wesley was commanding the, the Lexington and he was in the war games against the Enterprise, which was being controlled by the M5 computer. And it was interesting to note that his character was uh, in favor of having the computers taking over the ships to reduce the risk, men and women in Starfleet. Yeah, he, he, he definitely yeah. was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He was, you know, I'll tell you, for he also, uh, the actor who played him, and I, and I don't know, I'll have to look up who that was, um, did a real fair job with it, and, and he had a definite command presence about him, a very mature presence of him. I also like the way he kind of rubbed it in with Kirk. What do you call him, Captain Dunzel, if I remember right? Yeah, yeah, he he uh, he threw that in, and McCoy had to ask what a Dunzel was. And what was a Dunzel, Jeff? Uh, I don't remember Spock's exact words, but it was effectively a useless piece of equipment. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And that changed. So anyway, yeah, I think the 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 great part about this was that uh, there was definitely a familiarity between Commodore Wesley and Captain Kirk, and that seemed to be the case. I, I always got a kick out of it in all the series uh, that everybody in a senior officer rank seemed to know everybody else in your senior officer rank. But I uh, I guess it was a pretty exclusive club until we started to see just how many ships were actually out there. But uh, yeah, they these guys played off very well, and you know here, here's you know this would have been a great stump, Mister Atos. So can you remember the other ships in the squadron? I remember the Excalibur, but I can't remember the other ship. Um, I know there was the uh, the Lexington, the Excalibur. This would be an excellent stump, Mister Atos question. Though. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't get too far into it. I, I think I remember Excalibur because it was also part of a fan film, and that's the only yeah. reason I remembered it. But. Uh, there was. Uh, um, I think it was Exeter and. Was there more than three? There were four. There of four them. of them. Oh, okay. Exeter is right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you're right about that. Okay. Well, that'll be something for everybody to weigh in on the Babel conference and give us that that other ship's name. So we have Lexington, Excalibur, and Exeter so far. So what were the other ships? And uh, and I don't even know if they were all mentioned. To be honest with you. I haven't seen that episode in a while. Great episode. Yeah, though, I, I don't think they and, were all shown on screen. Uh, I know the uh, uh, the remastered edition. Uh, oh, it was the hood. That's what it was. Ah, there we go. I, Forget I, it, Babel Conference I, people. Yeah, I knew I would remember it. But uh, <laughs> there there were some shots where they added it in so that you could see the uh, the holes uh, and registry numbers. Oh, they did. Okay. Um, but okay. the original just, one, it was just longer shots because they were reusing the same miniature. Yeah, yeah, it looked like they just uh, superimposed three or four enterprises mm-hmm. uh, coming at them, and then was it the um, was it the same shot of the constellation when the Excalibur was just kind of adrift? Pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do remember here to you know going back to 
uh, Doomsday Machine, if I remember right, the Constellation was one of those ATM models it, mm-hmm. <laughs> because they didn't have the money to make another yeah. ship. So they yeah, literally they, took a model off the shelf and yeah. beat the crap out of it. Yeah, they, they put it together <laughs> and they like took a lighter to it. <laughs> Is that what it was? A lighter? <laughs> I mean, if you look at the way it's warped, it, you can tell it was, a, it was a lighter on the end of the nacelles. The size of the constellation looked uh, very similar to the size of the shuttle. It was as it was entering the maw of the Doomsday. Yeah, machine, that was, but. I think, more for the benefit of the audience because it was. Uh, if they've done that to scale, the thing would have been a, a like a tiny speck in the maw of the, uh, the Doomsday <laughs> machine. <laughs> I know. Hey, we love the show. We also like to tease some of the things that they did and. You know, it was all in good fun yeah. and good storytelling. But getting back to to Commodore Wesley, now he he comes back, but he comes is it is, is it in a novel or the animated series? Jeff? Well, Commodore Wesley came back in the animated series, and this time he was a civilian, and he was the governor of Mantilles. So, I mean, I have to wonder if what happened here at this weapons test caused him to uh, go into early retirement and possibly uh, run for a civilian office. Yeah, it could be. It's it's not a good thing when you when you command a bunch of ships and you back a program and then many people die. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, another could have been. Uh, another interesting thing though is uh, the actor. I believe his name was Barry Russo. Um, okay, he had previously appeared on Star Trek, and he was Security Chief Giotto uh, on uh, uh, was it Devil in the Dark? I believe. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. So we'll he, he, was, uh, he was the Enterprise Security Chief, and that was the only time we ever saw the Enterprise Security Chief. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. He did a lousy job, that Security Chief, whoever he was. Yeah. That's all I know. Yeah. Well, he went from Lieutenant Commander Giotto to Commodore Wesley, so. <laughs> yeah, he did okay. But you know, there's another connection here, right? So we were talking about the, the episode, The Ultimate Computer, mm-hmm. where there was Dr. Richard Daystrom. Mm-hmm. And he was played by uh, Percy Rodriguez. And Percy Rodriguez also played... Commodore Stone. Commodore Stone. That's right. You want to tell us a little bit about Commodore Stone? Uh, Commodore Stone was the commander of Starbase 11. Um, although I believe it was like the very next episode was uh, had a, also at Starbase 11 with a totally different commanding officer. So maybe it was just the <laughs> end of his... Uh, uh, tour there and like the very next episode we had you know change of command in between episodes or something but uh, he was uh, the uh, he oversaw the uh, court martial of Captain Kirk uh, in the the apparent death of Lieutenant Commander Ben Finney uh, and apparently uh, yeah I see in the notes here you put that uh, he played the uh, also did the voice for the trailers for Jaws which was your favorite yeah. movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, I have to say, I, Jaws is definitely my favorite movie. I have been, I have pinged on Matt Rushing a couple times in the Six Hundred Two Club. He's uh, at, at different times where, or uh, I was trying to get on the show, or he asked me to come on. It was on on either a subject I knew nothing about, or our schedules just didn't work. And it wasn't too often, but anyway, I did say, hey, you know, Jaws is my favorite movie. Could we do one on Jaws? And uh, I think he said yes, um, but I think that was sometime last year or maybe the year before. So <laughs> I think I think his schedule is a little bit full. But I was watching the, um, I, like I said, I've read every book about Jaws and, and, and have seen every documentary. And when they interviewed pa- Percy Rodriguez, now when I saw the trailers and everything, I had no idea because he had this very deep, ominous voice. I wouldn't even attempt to try to imitate and it was incredible and he did both jaws and jaws too and he just had that you know that that voice uh that, what i'll do is I'll, I'll see if i can find a wave i'll throw it in here and 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 people can hear it for himself he had a great great speaking voice i'm sure he did many other trailers uh, that that i'm unaware of but because i saw it in that documentary and saw him uh i i don't know if he's i i, I don't think he's still around but uh you know, and if you are, I'm really sorry, Mr. Rodriguez, but uh, just just an incredible voice, and he has a presence himself, both in as Doctor Daystrom and as Commodore Stone. Very, very imposing figure. Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, uh, if he is uh, still around, I'd like to see him to 
take a crack at that uh, mock trailer that someone did for Jaws 19 last year. Jaws 19? <laughs> okay. From, uh, I don't think I've caught that. Uh, yeah, it was uh, from Back to the Future 2. They had Jaws 19 with the holographic shark that attacked uh, Marty. And Oh, oh, yeah. oh yes. And so last that. year, somebody, because it was 2015, was when the movie was the, the future part of the movie, they did a fake trailer for uh jaws 19 listing all the other jaws movies leading up to that and it, it was pretty ridiculous i mean some of them were right up there with sharknado beautiful yeah i'll definitely check that out but um as far as commodore stone's uh character uh i i don't think he had a, a ton of screen time i'm trying to remember uh, to the episode a little bit more specifically he was basically just in there as kind of like a generic judge type figure we really mm-hmm. didn't get a whole lot with him. I, I I guess not. And one thing I'll say too, though, that that kind of shows, and we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about uh, the balance of terror. You know, there was there was a lot of good diversity, and you know, from from African Americans and Latinos and women and so forth and so on back in the mid '60s, with an awful lot of, um, of power and, uh, and, and in very prominent roles. And in this case, in both cases, you know, uh, Percy Rodriguez played, uh, two very pivotal characters. I think one from the, uh, from, from the ultimate computer as Dr. Daystrom, of course, he didn't have a great ending in that, but he was a genius. And we do know that there was the Daystrom Institute named after him. And, and he had, he had designed all the computers for, for all the, uh, for all the ships in the fleet, if I remember correctly. Yeah, his uh, duotronic systems were what they were using on the uh, ship at that at that point. I mean, that's right. And then, then obviously, uh, anytime you're playing somebody who's senior to James T. Kirk in any role, you know, if 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 Captain Kirk has to call you sir, you're doing okay. That's the way I look at it, anyway. And all he right. was in a position to end Kirk's career right then too. Yeah, he was. He was, and. Um, you know, I wonder if he also had to resign because he 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 almost uh, sent the Enterprise spinning into oblivion there. If <laughs> because he uh, he didn't believe that the uh, the computer had been manipulated, and the way they found out was a little bit over the top, but it's I guess it was effective. All right, so moving on, our next Commodore, Jeff Commodore Mendez, from the episode The Cage or The Menagerie. Excuse me, The Menagerie. Yeah, once again, we're at Starbase 11, and now we have a totally different Commodore in charge there. But one thing I did notice was Commodore Stone wore a red shirt. Commodore Mendez wore a gold shirt. Maybe they were both assigned in different areas of the Starbase. That's I another guess. possibility. It, is, uh, it, it could have been, the, and I guess it was never really stated that um, Stone was the commanding officer of Starbase 11. Could have mm-hmm. been. I just don't remember. But you're right. He could have been a, uh, a JAG officer, which mm-hmm. uh, would preclude him from commanding a Starbase. Uh, so, yeah, it could be. Yeah, because uh, when Mendez was serving on the, uh, the court-martial board for uh, Commander Spock, he was just kind of thrown in there because he was one of the highest ranking officers on the ship and there was nobody else but stone it was a full court martial that had been convened and he was the senior jag officer there so i can i can see the difference yeah yeah that actually makes sense it does make sense yeah. of course and then from a from a behind the scenes uh, angle too i mean there's another aspect to it as well because uh the guy who played commodore mendez also Malachi Throne, he also provided the voice of the Keeper for the cage, and they had new dialogue for the Keeper at the end of this episode, so that uh, necessitated bringing back Malachi Throne, and they figured, well, while we're at it, why not have him play the Commodore? Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. What an awesome name, Malachi Throne. You Mm -hmm. think that was a stage name? Um, possibly. I mean, that's that's, that's pretty unique. But very, again, it definitely grabs your attention, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we also know that, that Commodore Mendez, too, wound up, um, I guess, being an illusion, a hologram. What was he exactly? Uh, he was a mental projection by the Telosians mm-hmm. 
but he was a real person at the Starbase because when we first saw him at the Starbase, it was really him. It was only when he was on the shuttle with Kirk and on the Enterprise that he was the illusion. That makes sense. All right, yeah, I was always kind of curious about that. And, and, and the way that ended, too, I guess my question was, why did they just go all through, <laughs> through all that? If, if, if I guess they just wanted to have a record that would exonerate Spock once they did get back to the real Commodore Mendez. Yeah, I it was all being broadcast live back to uh, Mendez back at the Starbase, and he was seeing it all on his monitor and couldn't shut it off. Did they show that? I'm trying to remember. It was Uhura um, made a comment at the end of the episode, like she was saying that she got a message from the Starbase saying that uh, they had been receiving that as well. Ah, okay. So that's how Spock got to continue on with his career, huh? Mm-hmm. We were lucky. And we, you know, it's Norm's favorite movie and it's one of my favorite movies, but uh, there is also a last Starfighter connection here too. I'm listening. Um, Commodore Mendez provided the voice of the Keeper. The body of the Keeper was Meg, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, but it's uh, Wiley, Meg okay. Wiley. She played... Granny in The Last Starfighter. She did? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, there's the connection, folks. I, all right. Now, I said my favorite movie of all time was Jaws. Your favorite movie of all time was The Last Starfighter? Is that right? Well, it's Norm's, or one of Norm's. I'm not sure if it's his absolute favorite, but it's definitely up there in my uh, uh, top 10. Yeah. I enjoyed it, too. I, it was it was a definitely a good movie, and uh, I, I catch it probably once every two or three years. I find it again, and it's kind of a good romp. It's... it's uh, it's very 80s, <laughs> so it's fun in that way. And, uh, Norm and I uh, were coming also... up with ways that they could bring it back and do like a, a, a reimagining of it. Yeah. Now, that would have been after Tron, I guess, but probably yes. one of the first all-around CGI. It was just like a couple of years after Tron, I think. Okay. Because I think was Tron, Tron was like 82, 80. and this was oh. 84. Okay. Yeah, I, I do remember that, and I remember being very uh, being cleverly made with uh, with CGI. See, we digress again. Mm-hmm. You just never know where we're going to go. Okay. All right, so, Jeff, how about this? Now, we, we talked, I think, about the, the, the major Commodores in the show and, and what they added, and these were the guys that, you know, really had tangible roles to, to a certain level. Let's, uh, let's open up that, that Trekopedia knowledge of yours and talk about some of the other Commodores that uh, that appeared uh, or were heard on Star Trek, the original series. Well, I think it's really important to bring up Commodore Stalker uh, from, uh, I believe it was the Deadly Years, mm-hmm. uh, which I, th- I don't recall. I think it was a third season episode um, when uh, Kirk and Chekhov and uh, McCoy get infected with the aging virus. Right. Um, and Commodore Stalker, they were transporting him uh, to uh, Starbase 10, which he was taking over as the commanding officer there. And Kirk and the others get incapacitated. Their situation is deteriorating. And Stalker takes command of the Enterprise, and he tries to take a shortcut through the Romulan neutral zone to get to Starbase 10 faster, only for the ship to get attacked by a bunch of Romulan ships. Not a good day for Commodore Stalker. And a good lesson to all our Star Trekkies out there, Star Trekker fans. Never let a Commodore take command of your vessel. It never seemed to work out well when it happened on the Enterprise. Not on the Enterprise, or even when other Commodores were in charge, they they seemed to get into a little bit of trouble. Okay. Who else is out there, Jeff? um, And apparently he did end up assuming command of Starbase 10. They didn't, like bust him down and take away his command after that, uh, shockingly. But uh, in Voyager, there was uh, a reference on screen that uh, um, his assumption of command there was uh, a precedent in uh, Federation uh, legal history. Is that so? They re- I didn't realize that. So they, they go back yeah. to this episode? They go back to the dead? Yeah, yeah, they made a reference to this episode in the Voyager episode, Tinker Tinner, Dr. Spy. Do you think, uh, then, do you think uh, those there was on, Commodore? Do you think the uh, the team at Two the Journey realized that? Um, I don't know. Mm, okay, it was a very very obscure reference, and you know, blink and you'll miss it. Okay. It was uh, on one of the view screens, uh, like some of the the Akutagram data. 
Oh, oh, okay. So it wasn't set out right. It was something you could see in the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I think that would be pushing them then to expect. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When you said reference, I thought it was spoken openly. Okay. Yeah. There's there's a lot no, of that, lot of that things was, they put uh, out there. Yeah, Voyager did have an open reference to the original series uh, in the episode uh, Q two. Uh, Echeb was giving a uh, uh, an oral presentation on Kirk's five year mission to Janeway, and that's where they finally established that the five year mission was from twenty two sixty five to twenty two seventy. Oh, okay, so that locked it down officially then. All mm-hmm. those years later, okay, seventh season of Voyager, they finally. Did. <laughs> Okay. And by that point, had uh, Akuda's book come out already with different timelines? Um, actually, at that point, that even actually contradicted the Akuda uh, chronology. It did or it didn't? I'm sorry. It did. It did. Okay. Because their chronology had it precisely 100 or uh, precisely 200 years after it aired mm-hmm. or 300 years. Uh, misspoke there. Okay. But uh, it had it precisely 300 years after. Uh, the episode aired so that the first season started in 2267, but then Voyager comes along and says, no, it was 2265. You learn a lot from this show, folks. I know I do every time. And I actually take these notes because I have a feeling this information will circle back. Yeah. And all right. Then another so, another important uh, Commodore that we saw was uh, Commodore Barstow. Um, he was mm-hmm. uh, played by uh, Richard Durr or there. I'm not sure exactly okay. how you sp- uh, pronounce his last name. Uh, and that was from the episode The Alternative Factor, uh, when reality was winking right. out from the crossover between the antimatter universe from Lazarus. And he had ordered right. all other ships to withdraw from uh, within 100 parsecs of the planet where this was going on and then ordered the Enterprise to go in and check it out. And that's that was at the beginning of the episode. Commodore Travers right. from Arena... Right, uh, right he, yeah. Yes, he was the commander of the outpost on Cestus III, uh, and Kirk was saying that he was famous for his hospitality and because of privilege of rank, he had a personal chef with him at the colony. But then as we get into the episode, we find out the colony had been destroyed and these messages they'd been getting from the Commodore were faked by the Gorn, and so he was presumably killed there. Yeah, yeah, I remember that was... Uh... That was the big setup in the beginning. I had forgotten, though, that it had been a Commodore that they were talking about until until you mentioned it earlier. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. And then one other was from the Ultimate Computer again. Um, we had two Commodores in that episode um, commanding uh, the Starbase, uh, Starbase 6, uh, was Commodore Enright. And uh, he ordered the Enterprise to the station where they took on the, uh, the M5 computer and we never saw him on screen, but we heard his voice, and that was provided by James Dewan. Excellent. Okay. So I th- and he did a he did a ton of voices, even on the original series too. Yeah, I, I, you know it's funny as as time goes on, and the more I read about things in the past, or you know, listening to uh, uh, to to Saturday Morning Trek too, uh, it, it is amazing how many voices James Dewan mm-hmm. did. Oh, he did like two thirds of the animated series. <laughs> yeah, he did. Have you ever seen him live? Were you around? Did you ever see him in a convention? I never got to see him live. Um, I have an autograph photo that someone else got for me, but I never got to meet him. Well, one of the, one of the things he did, which I thought was very clever, I don't know if there's a YouTube of it out there, but I guess it was very common when he was doing the different conventions. Is he would do several different voices of what the engineer would be given the ethnicity. You know, so he would he would do uh, Spanish, he'd do Russian, he'd do them all. And and so they, you know, they'd set him up with, you know, uh, Kirk to engineering, and then he would answer in those different dialects. And he had quite a range, uh, a very impressive range. In fact, you know, it, it hearing him do some of those other accents, including English, and others, uh, I was thinking that uh, Scottish probably wasn't in his top five. That's how good he was, you know. And I know people make fun of his Scottish accent all the time, but he pulled it off just fine. I thought, you know. But uh, yeah, just interesting that 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 he did that that voice of Commodore Travers. All right, I think that's that's pretty much it. I know there were some references um, in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and there were some references 
only in TNG during, was it Conspiracy? Yeah, there were some, uh, like, from a uh, readout that Data was reading off in that episode, but that was the only time you ever saw Commodore outside of the original series and Enterprise. Yeah, so it, it, it's funny how that, that title was so common back in, in the 1960s in, in the, uh, the original series, but it didn't, it didn't translate. And, you know, even in the service today, um, you know, I served under a Commodore, uh, he was a he was a captain and I was his command senior chief and we we had uh, we he I was <laughs> I say we were in charge but he was in charge of several squadrons and that's how he had that title. But even today, even though I've been retired for a long time and he's been retired for a long time and we're very close friends, I still refer to him as Commodore. However, I try to do it in my best Captain Jack Sparrow voice because I would always <laughs> kind of pinch him there. Commodore, you know, just to have fun with him, but uh, <laughs> that's my Commodore story. I digress. All right, so um, well, I got uh, you got some more. I got my own Commodore story. All right, let's go. Let's hear it. Um, well, my uh, my family uh, was a Navy dynasty for a very long time, up until my grandfather uh, was the black sheep and then joined up with the Army Air Corps. Uh, How dare and, he! Uh, yeah, and then Blasphemy. a year later, it, a year later, it split off from the army and became the air force, mm-hmm. and it's been an air force family ever since. But up before that, it was a navy dynasty, and in the War of eighteen twelve, we had Commodore John Rogers, mm-hmm. and then his grandson during the Civil War was Commodore and later Admiral uh, John Rogers, and. There was also another commander, John Rogers, who uh, worked with the Wright brothers, but uh, uh, you can see a pattern in the names in the family there. But uh, we had several uh, admirals, and we actually found a photo of uh, uh, the Civil War era, um, John Rogers, and it looks just like my father with less hair. Oh, yeah? Now, do you look like your dad Uh, at all, too? And I look like my dad as well, so... uh, it's uh, a very, very strong family resemblance. Uh, it kind of reminds me of people that were uh, making fun of uh, the episode of Voyager where they had Kate Mulgrew playing her ancestor uh, on, in 1999. Mm-hmm. But it's about the same amount of time difference, and you, it looks like me about 20 or 30 years older. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> wow. So your grandfather, your dad, and yourself all went Air Force. Is that right? And my brothers and my aunts and my uncles and my cousins. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, they really jumped aside. And and here you are. Yeah. And then my, my one of my sisters was the black sheep and she went in the army and then married a Marine. <laughs> okay. That's quite a lineage you got there. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was a Navy family uh, primarily. Uh, there were also um, other parts of the family that were army and, and such, mostly during the Civil War. I see. Well, it's nice that you can you can track your 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 family history. That's uh that that's a pretty neat trait, and to know it uh, to that degree, you know the uh, I guess the only real distant relative we had that was famous was Douglas MacArthur. My my mother's maiden name is MacArthur, and I forget what level of cousin he was to the group. Uh, of course, he was Army, and I've been Navy all the way, and my family's been Navy all the way for a very very long time. Uh, but um, yeah, that that's that's pretty cool. Excellent. Well, that's 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 a good lineage. So you were directly related to two Commodores, one that went on to become an admiral. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, and both of whom have also had about six ships named after them. That's impressive as well. So there were uh, there were like uh, I think three USS Rogers and three USS John Rogers. Mm-hmm. And I've always wanted to see that name pop up in Star Trek somewhere because I mean there are that many ships in the U.S. Navy. And as many other ship names have carried over from the U.S. Navy to the Star Trek. So, Jeff, I got to know. I mean, even though your family kind of went over to the Air Force, you being a Star Trek fan, and let's face it, I mean, Starfleet essentially is the Federation Navy, um, humanitarian armada and all that stuff, but it's still the Federation's (laughs) Navy. Um, You have this lineage of, of having ship names after you. No draw to the Navy at all? No shot at having a USS Harlan out there one day? No, it never really appealed to me. I was always more interested in the Air Force. Okay. Is there going to be a, is there a USS Harlan in any of your fanfic? Uh, no. Not yet? Okay. 
No, but I have used uh, John Rogers as the name of several of my ships on Star Trek Online. Oh, that's pretty cool. Okay. So I think that 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 gets us through all the Commodores for the original series. So are we ready to move on to our next segment, Mr. Ataz? I believe so, yes. Okay. Hailing frequencies open, please. Hailing frequencies are open. Okay. This past week, we received a lot of great comments on the Babel Conference, and Norm, Jeff, and I would really like to thank everyone for their participation and feedback. The The amount of traffic and volume that has been coming through has been incredible, and, and like I say, it is extraordinarily humbling to, to see that, and, and we appreciate the feedback. We truly do, because it makes us really want to, uh, to do better week after week and prepare even harder for our show so that we can bring good entertainment to you. And another nice event that, that occurred and, and was unbelievable uh, was, was two five-star reviews that we received from Chris Baca and Greg Malumbi. Thank you, guys. I mean, we, we, at, we here at Standard Orbit, we, we take those comments um, really to heart. And, and, and when I say that uh, we want to continuously improve, we do. So while we enjoy all the praise, we also like to hear good constructive feedback, too, on how we can do things better. Because... Without improving and without trying to to make it better each and every week, you start to get um, stale, and we certainly don't want that to happen. We we want to continue to to always look for some exciting topics, uh, do the due diligence, the right amount of research, and come in and try to be as entertaining as possible. And you know, we 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 always try to hit it out of the park. I know we don't always succeed, but we continually want to succeed. So your feedback is vital, and so. Um, you know, I'm a little sensitive, but Jeff's like a rock. So go ahead. Just hit us with whatever you have for constructive criticism, and we'll listen and always try to do better. So we are going to try to stump Mr. Atos. Now, Ian Kimmins sent me a very unique and unusual question. This is this is really going to test you because it's it's not so much just a Star Trek question as... You know, it's almost those people that have unbelievable photographic memories and, and can recall days and dates. <laughs> so when I told you that he came up with a good one, he came up with a good one. So are you ready? Have you had enough vitamin C? You charged up? Um, I am about as good as I'm going to get. Okay. So here we go, Jeff. What was the day and the date of the first day of filming of The Cage? I know it was... Uh... 1964, I believe, but I don't remember the exact date. Oh, okay. So what I will do is I will have Ian send me his IM information, and I will, I guess, get him the shirt of his choice from Redbubble because we missed it. It was definitely 1964. Friday, 27 November. Very good job, Ian. You finally stumped Mr. Atos. I think this, the spirit of the question was, was very, very difficult because it wasn't, I guess, directly related to Star Trek within the universe piece of it, more of a timeline. But, um, hey, we said make it difficult, and Ian, you did just that because I, <laughs> when I first read the question, I said, oh, there's no way. And uh, <laughs> he, he did yeah, it. I'm not as up on the, uh, the real-world production side of it. Yeah, that's okay. So... Um, uh, we, we left the rules wide open. We just said to try and stump you, and they did. So we'll play it fair. So um, as as we move on, any any final thoughts about the uh, the Commodores, Mr. Atos? No, I think we've done a pretty good job covering it. Uh, um, I'm really interested to in seeing what uh, everyone else on the Babel Conference has to add on this. Yeah, I, there's, there's there's always more information to come, and the, uh, the responses there have been incredible but i i will say this it's been it's been a lot of fun talking about the commodores uh and this is just one of the trek topics we've been talking about on trek fm this week here's a quick look of what you might have missed elsewhere on the network previously on trek.fm the orb the wadi a fun-loving race from the gamma quadrant arrive at ds9 eager to play a game with cisco and the crew one that appears to be a matter of life and death all right, so are we moving along, Matthew? Oh, we're moving along. <laughs> the ready room. He's carrying in the lamb chop sock puppet <laughs> saying, 
She stayed at her post. <laughs> While Charlie Horse ran. <laughs> While Charlie Horse ran. <laughs> <laughs> to the journey! And then sexiness ensues and it's a slow dissolve to the next morning. Fantastic. Okay. Check. Janeway gets some. Check. Janeway gets some. Confirmed. Commentary. Trek stars. You know, you, you come up with something stupid because of some joke that someone said and someone else said, and then all of a sudden you're doing a uh, tournament of movies which J.J. Abrams produced to determine which one is the crappiest. Women at Warp. A.F., which are the initials that Picard carved into Boothby's tree back on Starfleet Academy, and that is how he met Boothby the groundskeeper. Well, we never did learn... Boothby's first and second name, did we? <laughs> it was all a ploy to get to hang out with Boothby. Meta Trex. What I find most interesting is that when Deanna suggests it, Riker doesn't say, what, that's a crazy idea, or I've never thought about that. He's just like, oh, okay, good idea. And like, it's a normal okay, thing. Yeah. So it's kind of a normal thing to, to call up something in the holodeck mm-hmm. and kind of work through it or live through it. Melodic Trex. The reason why I think Brian Reitzel would be a more plausible choice is because he has worked with Fuller in the past. They worked together on Hannibal. He scored that series, all 39 episodes. The neat thing about Brian Reitzel's music is it's more of a sound design than it is a score. Saturday Morning Trek. Chekhov was in the first season, but he was working on the third deck behind the boiler room and was ill with a condition called Malapropsky's malady, which is a kind of 23rd century version of Montezuma's revenge, and was hidden in the bathroom, ensconced there for hours and hours, while poor Mr. Connor's genetically engineered kidneys about to explode, pounded pitifully on the door, begging to be let in, until finally the door opens, Chekhov steps out, Khan looks at him and says, Your face, I remember. That's the best explanation I've ever heard. You get get the idea that I've told this story before. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So, Jeff, if you could, could you tell our listeners on how they can access our avenues to Trek.fm? Well, you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at Trek.fm, and you can grab the RSS link there as well. And if you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes, and it helps us to increase our visibility for new listeners. One of the ways our listeners can help us out is becoming a patron by joining Patreon. Now, what is Patreon? Patreon.com is our way of funding the network. We are a fan-supported, listener-supported network. And for us to keep shows coming in order to buy the equipment we need, uh, buy and, and, and hold all the bandwidth, the service to download, it gets very expensive. So we ask for our fans to help us out. But we don't do it without giving you some things in return besides outstanding shows. We also have... Uh, different incentives, and we have different perks for you uh, as a patron. So for $15 a month, you can join the Patrons Roundtable. Now, the Patrons Roundtable is a, a, an awesome uh, place for all t- for any of the patrons who subscribe for that $15 amount to come in and actually do, do a podcast with several of the hosts from Trek FM. Now, Jeff, I think, uh, if I remember, you and I were on the original one. Yeah, yeah, I was on the first three or four of them. Um, I haven't really been able to join in on any others recently, but I was on those first few. Yeah, I, I remember being on the first one. It was actually with you and Norm. What a mm-hmm. coincidence! And Will Win at the time. So that was uh, that that was pretty unique. And now now look at us. That's scary, huh? So <laughs> beyond that, so for twenty five dollars a month, you could be an associate producer on the episode. Uh, I'm sorry, on the show of your choice. So. That is also an outstanding perk, and that really helps us move it along. And then incrementally, you know, just for just for signing up and, and, and doing whatever you can help us out with, you can get into the patron zone, which allows you to get early access feeds to a lot of our shows and a lot of neat things that both Chris and Aaron Harvey has put in there to for you to download in the patron section. So there's a lot of incentive to do it, but mostly it really does help out the network, and we really appreciate your ability to help us out. 
And if you want to wear your Trek FM fandom, you can also find great Trek FM themed merchandise at redbubble.com. Just type in Trek FM into the search field. And just like I'll be doing for Ian very shortly once he sends me specifically what shirt he wants, uh, going in there and ordering from Redbubble and, and shipping it to him. So I think that uh, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, I'm, I really enjoy those shirts, and uh, I have a, a couple of them myself. And I, I really enjoy just taking them out, wearing them out, and, and uh, having a, them as conversation starters with people who've never heard of the network. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, could you could you also tell us a little bit about the Babel Conference? It's a very informal and a very respectful place where uh, we can just all just kind of hang out and we can uh, we can just uh, talk about our fandoms together. We also want to take this time to to thank our associate producers for Standard Orbit. Without them, we could not continue to bring you this show. I mean, they, they provide so much support, and we thank Renee Roberts and Richard Rudledge. I mean, it it's one of those things where, and I know exactly where, where you're coming from, where, you know, you're proud to put your name on something that you really support and really enjoy. Uh, and because of your support, we're able to bring the show to so many other people. So thank you both, Renee, and thank you, Richard. And you can find Renee on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701 and Richard at RUT8972. So in addition, so if you, if you want to find us on the, on the interwebs, please, uh, you can find me on the Babel Conference all the time. That's where I hang out, and that's where I really enjoy finding more information and, and, and engaging all of the people on the network. And uh, Jeff, where can we find you on the interwebs? All right, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And as I mentioned earlier, the Babel Conference. Just type the Babel Conference as B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook or go to the website at TrekFM and click discussion on the menu bar. Now, if you don't have access to an Tavacron, you can always find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter at Harlander and as a supporter of the network through Patreon. I'm also the co-host, not only here on Standard Orbit, but also on Warp 5. And you can check out my website. It's been called The Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek, and that's at trekopedia.com. So join us next week for another exciting episode of Standard Orbit. Standard Orbit.